Thanks for tuning in for Access Utah. Before we jump into today's interesting discussion, a comment has come in responding to yesterday's program. You'll recall we revisited our conversation on the future of libraries. And we talked with John Palfrey, founding president of the Digital Public Library of America. This has come in from Brenda, who emailed us. She says, at the local library in Logan, we are retiring a lot of old-time classics because no one is checking them out anymore, quote-unquote. They sell a grocery bag's worth of them for a couple of dollars. Do they read them digitally, she asked. I believe there is a way to revive the interest in old-time classics. In the Chinese culture, we never, ever retire the classics. They remain an integral part of our philosophical makeup. That's Brenda. Thank you for that. Welcome now to Axis Utah. When Graham Cavanaugh divorced his first wife, it was to marry his girlfriend, Audra. A woman as irrepressible as she is spontaneous and fun. But Graham learns when life with Audra can also be exhausting, constantly interrupted by chatty phone calls, picky-eater houseguests, and invitations to weddings of people he's never met. Audra firmly believes that through the sheer force of her personality, she can overcome the most socially challenging interactions. She even decides to establish a friendship with Graham's first wife, Elspeth. Graham isn't sure he understands why Audra longs to be friends with the woman he divorced. After all, are former spouses uh, enemies, old flames, or just people you know really, really well? And as Graham and Audra share dinners, holidays, and late glasses of wine with his first wife, he starts to wonder, how can anyone love two such different women? Did I make the right choice? Is there a right choice? Standard Deviation is the hilarious and rueful debut novel of love, marriage, infidelity, and origami. And the author, Catherine Heine, is author previously of Single Carefree Mallow, a collection of short stories. Her fiction has been published into The New Yorker, The Atlantic, Plowshares, and other publications. She lives in Washington, D.C. with her husband and children and uh, joins us for the hour today. Catherine Heine, welcome to the conversation. Thank you for having me. We appreciate it. I should say, uh, paperback of Standard Deviation launches, I believe, today. So uh, that's uh, another milestone yeah. for for the novel. You had uh, you you started out writing young adult novels, got into writing short stories. What was that that transition like uh, going to a novel? Was there some nervousness about that? Well, for a long time, I felt I couldn't write a novel. I felt a lot of like that just made me feel pressured, and so I was writing short stories, and once I decided that I was just a short story writer, that novels were never going to come, then short stories started coming really quickly. And the novel actually started out as a series of short stories, and um, I was sending them to my agent one by one, and she was like, when are you going to send me another chapter? And I totally freaked out. I was like, please don't use that word. But once she'd put it that way, I sort of realized it was a novel. And then it it became a novel. That doesn't sound very articulate. But mm. it was something I had to sort of back into yeah, a uh, little bit. Yeah, I understand. And you've quoted Laurie Morgan uh, in a previous interview, the short story is a love affair, novel is a marriage. Yeah. And I feel like a short story is a party and a novel is, a really long family reunion where you <laughs> see people in their bathrobes and things. Um, the, the but res- I liked it. Yeah. I miss I miss being with those characters now. Yeah. Um, so tell us a little bit about, uh, I just want to mention that it opens, the, the novel opens, Graham and Audra, this is his second wife, uh, they're shopping, and we get to Graham's interior life. Um, he thinks uh, he and his wife live in parallel universes, and worse, <laughs> his universe is lonely and arid. Hers is densely populated. Um, well, when I when I started writing the book, I knew that um, Graham and Audra were really opposites in terms, sort of on the extrovert introvert scale. Um, and I felt, and I still feel like I'm. I'm Graham, completely, very introverted. Um, but I think I changed during the writing of the book. And um, recently I had to take my dad to the ophthalmologist. And we were there for like two hours. And afterward, my brother was like, what did he say about dad's vision? What does he think we should do? And I'm like, well, I didn't really get to that because I was talking about where his daughter should go to college <laughs> and you know how they feel about that. 
And I don't think that's something I would have done before I wrote the book. I, I feel like I became Audra a little bit mm-hmm. in the writing process. What do you think that difference is? Is it, uh, you know, some people are, and I relate to this, that some people are careful, right? You're, you're careful, you're very structured. Uh, Audra seems to, to, mm-hmm. to not have a filter. Yeah, she definitely, I think she was maybe born without one, or else it was eroded from, like, gossiping too much. Um, but that's why she was so fun to write about. Like, I realized very early on that she would say anything. What, uh, what, can you give me an example? Um, there, there are many. <laughs> um, well, there's an example early on in the book where they go to the wedding of some friends and she knows sort of sexual detail about the bride. And she says it during the wedding in a voice that everyone can hear. Um, and, and that was sort of one of the first things that as an author that I knew she would do. Um, which happened to somebody that I know, and I waited 15 years to use it in a book because I thought it was so perfect. Um, so there, there's also a place in the book where somebody says their eyes were bigger than their stomach, and she says, how big is your stomach? <laughs> and I don't think she means to be really insulting, but she sort of is. Hmm. And There's this people without filters, it's good and it's bad. Yeah, I was just going to say it's. I mean, it's you know, it can be embarrassing, but it can be freeing too. Can it? It's. I mean, it, it, we wish we, we. Sometimes we wish if you if you have a filter, you wish you didn't. Um, but if you don't have a filter, do you ever wish that you did? Like, I don't think Audra yeah. knows that she needs a filter. Yeah, I get. Maybe that's part of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I think Graham, Graham is envious in a certain way. I mean, you know, sometimes embarrassed, but, uh, envious too, do you think? I think so. I think he sees that she is more engaged with the world and that she moves a little more freely through it. And, um, and sometimes I think he wishes that she would pay more attention to him. Sometimes I think that she thinks he thinks that he could might as well be a person at a bus stop because she has intimate conversations with everyone. Mm. Like he wants to be a little higher in the pecking order. And that, that scene that I referenced, that opening scene, uh, he, he, he says to himself, it's like being at the grocery store with, uh, with a dignitary. Mm-hmm. Because she knows so many people and she... Um, I think that he feels through much of the book, and that's why I opened with that scene, that he's sort of trailing behind her, um, and and it's hard to keep up with her. I think he feels that more and more as their marriage goes on. Hmm. So um, Graham is pretty pretty buttoned down, um, but he he does mm-hmm. he, he's the he's the character who I think grows the most um, during the course of the novel. I agree. I think she stays pretty much the same. And what... I think that... Sorry. No, no, go ahead. Uh, so uh, I was wondering what, what that arc what that arc is, do you, do you think? What, what is he growing toward? Um, I think he's growing toward acceptance. I think he's learning to accept that their son has Asperger's, which I think he's shown some denial about earlier in the book, and that um, he wouldn't want it any other way. And I think he's he learns that he he can't change Audra, but um, he doesn't want to live without her. Hmm. I think it's a novel of acceptance on a lot of levels. Yeah. Uh, tell us about their the, the son Matthew. Uh, one thing Matthew is really into origami, and I, I think reading uh, that this is this is a detail that comes from uh, the life of your family. Yes, my older son went through a big infatuation with origami, and it wasn't something that we um, we ever nurtured. I mean, he found a really old book on the bookshelf of paper airplanes, and he went through it and folded them all. 
And then he could fold them all from memory. So we bought more books on origami, and he started watching YouTube videos. And he joined an origami club, and we went to the origami convention. And for a few years, it kind of, I wouldn't say it ruled our lives, but when you love somebody who loves origami, you go to a lot of stuff. Mm. We drove, I drove him out in the middle of the countryside once to fold origami with this woman and they folded origami together and I um, brushed her poodle because there was nothing else to do or I would have done it. Mm. And I was like, oh, this is what we do for love. <laughs> yeah, I mean, not your thing, but your son's thing and so you support him. This, this is a whole whole other world. I, I didn't know they had origami conventions, for example. Yeah, um, we went to the national convention in New York, um, and it was it was actually really fun. Um, but it was amazing to me that to go into a class and follow these like detailed directions. That I think if I had to do that, I would have some sort of you know mental collapse and be like raving in a home somewhere. But for my son, it was fun, mm. and. He got to be with so many people who thought just like him. And, um, you know, he wanted to stay and have lunch with everybody. He didn't want to go off and have lunch with me somewhere. And he was only 10, so it was it was pretty cool. Hmm. And t- tell me about this. <laughs> I kind of laughed, I guess, laughing at your pain at that point. Um, you're, the, the, the world in origami conventions, anyway, is, is, is separate into folders and non-folders. You have to wear a name tag. Was non-folder on it? Oh, absolutely. When when we got to the when you go to register, they say folder or non-folder, and then you have to wear a name tag. And it was like human and subhuman. <laughs> and um, when Angus stayed and my son stayed and had lunch there, but I went out for lunch and I took off my badge. And when I came back in, I had to root through my purse to find it. And the woman behind me in line was like, you should wear your badge all the time. And I said, well, I didn't want to wear it out in public. And then she looked at my badge and was like, oh, non-folder. I should have known. Um, So there's a lot of um, scorn for the non-folders of the world. (laughs) You're you're a non-folder. You're supporting a folder, though. Um, I know. Yeah. I mean, you should get some credit for that. Uh, so an outsider here, and this is you've said before the hair earlier in, the, in this hour, um, Graham in some ways feels like an outsider when when he's with Audra. She has all these friends and acquaintances, so social, and and he's not. Mm-hmm. What is um, and I I think that well describes many people. Some people do have these these big circles, and other people don't. I I agree, and I think in the book, um, I mean, one of the reasons I included all the origami stuff was not only because that's what was going on in my life when I was writing it, but um, to show that in the in the origami world, Matthew probably functions much better than either Graham or Audra, so that's sort of his universe, and they're so used to having to function for him. That's it's really kind of a reversal of the roles. Um, but also that when you love somebody who loves origami, you have to learn to function in that world, too. Um, I guess I see the world is kind of divided into all these circles. And maybe you're luckier the more of them you can work in. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, it certainly does. You've uh, interestingly you've you've said that uh, standard deviation began as if I've got this right as a sh- as the least satisfying short story ever. I guess in in t- tell me about that. And this is because uh, there there was you know a couple they had a a son who in the novel became Matthew, but but, but we never learn what exactly uh, what it is about Matthew. Um, well, it did start out, the original short story was was called, I think, Countdown to the Diagnosis. And then they never got the diagnosis, which everybody who read it was like, this so doesn't work. Um, but 
I think that's because I started out and I was just, I, I wanted to write about the, this couple that was sort of on the opposite ends of the introvert extrovert thing. And I, I knew in my mind that they had a son and that he was also much closer to the introverted thing. And the more I wrote, the more I wanted him to actually have a diagnosis, but I wasn't sure what it was. So I didn't put it in and that wound up being really frustrating for everyone. And then even in the book as it is now, it's a slow reveal that he has Asperger's because it was a really slow reveal to me as a writer. Hmm. And and it does, uh, that's interesting that uh, it, because the, the, the spectrum in the book, you know, Audra is a very extroverted and uh, Graham is, is much more introverted. Then their son is very introverted in a way, Asperger's, right? But but in certain worlds, he he's very social. Certain universes, like the Oregon Convention, able to shine. Yeah, yeah. And that stands in for I guess for each and, one of us. There might be different situations where we're at different points on that spectrum. Well, I think part of growing up is sort of learning how to function in other people's universes. Um, the whole like going on a sleepover, having dinner at someone else's house, that's all about their roles and how they do something. Um, and I think for some people it comes really easily, and for some people it doesn't. Hmm. Let's take a break. When we come back, I want to bring in Elspeth. Uh, this is Graham's first wife. They haven't seen each other, or okay. I think had no contact for 10 years, right? And then and then they meet again, and yeah. she becomes very important. And we get into a whole other set of issues. Uh, so I want to talk about that uh, when we come back. And maybe later on we could get into uh, some of your biography. For one thing, you're married to a former spy, which is Correct. pretty interesting. Correct. <laughs> uh, so uh, MI6, which I think I understand, at least for, for a time, uh, no one was supposed to utter those words, right? We were supposed to not uh, accept that we have an MI6. Anyway, we'll talk about some of those things uh, following this break. Most of Utah's precipitation falls as snow. And while all that beautiful Utah powder is great for skiing and snowboarding, it does not hold a lot of water. Living in the second driest state in the U.S. that also has among the fastest growing populations means all Utahns need to make water conservation a habit. Researchers in USU's Department of Plants, Soils, and Climate examine the water needs of all kinds of crops and landscape plants and share recommendations through USU Extension and the Center for Water Efficient Landscaping that are helping Utahns use water more wisely. Combined, even small changes in water use can make a big difference. Support for Ag Matters on Utah Public Radio is provided in part by our members and by the College of Agriculture and Applied Sciences at Utah State University, offering more than 70 degrees with courses available at USU campuses throughout the state and online. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with Catherine Heine, uh, author previously of a short story collection, single, carefree, mellow, and uh, now a novel. Her debut novel is called Standard Deviation. Uh, got uh, all sorts of uh, great reviews now out in paperback. I think just today it's out. Standard Deviation is uh, the novel's been described as a hilarious and rueful novel of love, marriage, infidelity, and origami. Uh, we meet in the novel Graham, who I believe is an investment banker. Uh, his second wife, Audra, is this uh, irrepressible, very social uh, person. And uh, they have a son, Matthew. We've been talking about that. Now, I want to get into talking about uh, re-entry into their lives of Graham's first wife, Elspeth. And uh, Catherine Heine, Elspeth is uh, very much closer to Graham, right, in terms of personality. She's... Uh, also kind of buttoned up and uh, and very structured. Tell us about Elspeth. Absolutely. Um, well, she came into the novel because while I was writing it, um, we went to a Christmas party of some friends, and the first wife dropped off the friend's children, and she and the husband hugged 
really happily before she left again. And I was like, wow, I really want to know how they got to that point. Um, so then I thought, well, Elspeth has to come back into the book. We have to see what she was like. And um, it occurred to me that she would be much more like Graham and that he would have been drawn to that almost for the same reason he's drawn to Audra, because she's the opposite of that. And this is a really interesting question. You're really, really close to someone, then suddenly you're not. And, the, and, and Graham and Elspeth haven't met again for, for 10 years. And then they have lunch in a deli, and he doesn't know what to say. And that's kind of a startling moment for him, that um, can, can you have small talk with somebody you used to be married to? Or, or is that chance gone forever once you're divorced? Mm. I think he struggles with that. And I think he struggles a lot with the fact that Elspeth is alone and he's not. And he feels responsible in a way for that. And um, Audra encourages this. She, she, and in fact, she wants to be friends, right, with Elspeth? She wants to encourage the uh, reconnection? I think that she's just curious. I think she just wants to know the kind of person her husband was married to. And I also think Audra is very oblivious, and her obliviousness leads to her being very secure. So I don't think she's ever threatened by this friendship with the former wife. She just thinks it's it's great. It's another layer of friendship and interestingness in her life. Um, You have said your husband... One of the things he said he liked about you is the fact that you, when you got back from being with friends or, or someone, you not only reported what they said, but you reported what they thought about it, the interior life. Mm. Um, yeah, I have two two friends who are really close to me, and early on in our relationship, my husband was like, I like that you not only tell me what happened, you tell me what your friends thought of it. <laughs> I was like, well, they're kind of part of the thinking process for me. And then uh, I think you went on to say, uh, you know, that when you're close friends with someone, they're in your head all the time. Oh, absolutely. And your spouse, too. Yeah. And, um, yeah, anyone you're close to. You take on their thoughts after and Certainly, you consider them, their opinions in your mind. And so with people like Graham and Elspeth, you then divorce. Ten years apart, uh, you, you not only lose that you know, physical proximity, but I uh, guess you lose them in your head. You, you lose that interiority. Certainly, their voice goes quiet, um, but, but probably doesn't disappear altogether. Like, I still think of things that my college roommate said and thought. Sometimes she, you know, her opinions pop up, and I haven't seen her in years and years. So, um, yeah, it's, I mean, it's kind of about how once people get in your head, it's hard to get them out. And then this is a very interesting question. Graham, you know, has lost that to whatever extent, that closeness. Now Elspeth reappears. And and then what do you do? What 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 is the goal even, <laughs> right? What what is an ex? Is it a friend, enemy? What and and what should that be? They they explore that question. Well, I think Graham struggles with that a lot. I think um, that deep down, one of his motivations is to show Elspeth how happy he is with Audra, so that I think he wants her approval of their relationship, which is really unrealistic of him because Audra was the cause of their divorce. And however much Elspeth has moved on, she's probably not going to ever, you know, approve of that wholly. Um, but I think he also wants to, he feels lucky and he feels like he wants to share a little bit of that luck with his ex-wife. And he wants to make her less lonely and less isolated. Um, but he's, he's kind of playing with fire because, they have a history and a really complicated one. In in uh, in the novel, uh, Graham goes home, and Audra says something to the effect of, "You didn't get answers to any of the good questions." <laughs> and I related to Graham mm. 
Graham is his main uh, worry is let's just get through this without any more hurt feelings. Yeah, um, and Audra can't understand that. She can't relate to that at all. She's like, you had this golden opportunity to find out stuff and you missed it. Um, and actually, I hadn't thought of that till this moment. But that's I'm very much Audra like that, and my husband is very much like Graham. And whenever he comes home, I'm like, oh, but you didn't find out, <laughs> you know, what this person does for sex or whatever. And he is like, of course I didn't. We were having a lunch. <laughs> but, um, and I, I, uh, I kind of tangentially, I recognize, you know, that there are, you know, gender differences, obviously. Um, my sisters and my wife, uh, one of the questions is, what was, what was she wearing? And I'll say, well, you know, she was wearing uh, she was wearing clothes. Oh, I, I can tell you that, you know, but I can't tell you any of the details. So I didn't notice them. No, I don't think men do. Like, if I ever ask my husband about the detail of somebody's outfit, he looks sort of fearful, and then he says she looked very pretty, <laughs> or the mother word that doesn't have any actual detail <laughs> in it. He, he looks. He looks fearful. I can relate to that. What, what, is, what do you think his worry is? Um, that I'm going to be unhappy because he didn't bring me back the kind of you know salacious or even interesting detail that I am hungering for. Right. Right. Wow. I'm really more like Audra. Yeah. The more we talk, I'm realizing. <laughs> You have said elsewhere that Audra, let me quote this, uh, Audra, there's something very feminine about her, a feminine quality of socializing. Now she's always creating this social microcosm wherever she goes. Uh, so so they're a, a kind of a gender distinction in socializing. I think so. I think that she, um, I mean, she tends to be very interested in the personal and Graham, there's a conversation sort of late in the book where um, the conversation starts out at a very personal level, and Audra's really happy, and then it moves out to a more global level, and Audra starts, you know, sort of making impatient noises by blowing air through her nose and stuff, and they, they have to move on. Um, so I don't know if that's all women and all men, but um, I do think that women tend to be more... Um, personally invested more in in in, in their friendships. Hmm. Well, I don't know if that's true. Well, or more invested in the details, I should say. Yeah, I I can only say it, you know it's it's true from my experience, at least anecdotally. Um, there there's um, I'll just say that I'll I'll, I'll distance this from our discussion about gender differences, lest I get myself into trouble. Audra seems to love to gossip. And they, I guess there can, oh, be, there can be good and bad. We ne- we normally think of it, oh, it's negative, but you know there can be some positives to it as well, I think. Well, I think that um, her... It's, I think because she's so interested in everything, I think a lot of her gossip is... She's not always after a salacious detail. She's just after detail. She's a detail person. And then I think because she has so many friends, she winds up with this huge network of people that she can call on for favors. And she does favors for people. And um, she's, you know, sort of political in her own way and in her own life. And I think that... um, one of Audra's really good points is her devotion to Matthew and how she's just willing to do anything to make his life better. The the filter, the lack of filter, and the things Audra says often come out um, with humor, right? Or at least people uh, have that reaction, and that can be a positive. It can be awkward, but uh, you know, humor can. Grease the wheel socially can bring people together. I agree. Um, somebody wrote, well, this is not so much as how humor can grease the wheels, but how lack of it can make you suffer. Somebody, I was on Facebook and somebody wrote, um, 
you know, is it possible to die from small talk? And somebody else wrote, I've been a ghost the whole time you knew me. And I thought that was really funny and really true. And I think Audra has no patience with small talk, even though she talks so much. It all, she wants it all to be meaningful and all to be sort of digging deeper. And um, I think that's kind of admirable. The, uh, I wonder if you tell me about the title, Standard Deviation. Well, when I was writing it, um, the book, it had no title. It was just, we just called it the Graham and Audra book. And then um, one of the origami folds in the book is Leviathan. And I thought maybe we would call the book Leviathan, but then that didn't sound right for this book. So we were sort of tossing titles around, and my dad is a statistician, and I don't know whether he suggested the title Standard Deviation or whether I just thought of it and I ran it past him. And um, and he really liked it, and I sort of like, I thought it applied to the book and um, and sort of applied to Graham and Andra in the standard part and then the deviation from the norm. Um, although early on, um, one of the book covers sort of looked a little bit like a math textbook. And, um, I sent it to my dad and my dad was like, I would buy this book. So I went back and I was like, we know it's not the right cover. My dad would buy it. Then, then no. Um, and I knew very early on that I wanted the cover to have origami on it. So we were always sort of working toward that. Mm. So, so norms um, and, uh, you know, social norms, Audra tends to break them, mm-hmm. which is, I don't think for her it's freeing because that's just the way she is. But you say that, uh, I guess, writing about Audra, having her in your head, you became more like her. Was that, is that freeing for you? Do you still, you still kind of break down the filter a bit or have you gone back to having more of a filter? I, I think I I still break down the book. I mean, break down the filter a bit. Um, it It is kind of freeing, I think. Um, the people in my life that I know who are more like Audra, um, that's sort of their bread and butter or whatever. Like, they're so interested in other people that they can't leave the pharmacist until they've talked to the pharmacist about, you know, where his kids are going to school and what his favorite meal is. And I go more through stages where um, something will catch my attention and then I really want to pursue that and know all about that person, you know, even if it's the UPS man who's like, I really have to go now. Um, (laughs) So I would say I'm in the middle, but I do know people who um, are are not satisfied with, with the... Um, superficial relationships with anyone. And in a certain, you know, I think all of us, if we really think about it, maybe shouldn't be satisfied with that, right? But but for many of us, uh, I don't know, out of convention, out of the norm, out of what, out of laziness, I don't know what it is. We are satisfied with that. Well, um, I think it also depends as a person is how much you can put into other people and still have something left for yourself. I think that Graham is a person that in order to function, he needs to sort of have distance from people. Um, And Audra doesn't. She has lots of energy. Before we go to break, and I want to come back and uh, get into a little bit of your biography, which is fascinating. Um, I want to kind of uh, start with that. You you wrote a very, I found a very, touching uh, piece in the New York Times. You can find this link to it from uh, Catherine Heine's uh, Twitter uh, feed, which is at Catherine underscore Heine. Uh, so this is in their Modern Love um, series. I wonder if you could, t- <laughs> talking about uh, lack of filters, children often don't have filters. Um, and you, you say you were, you're driving the morning carpool with your son and another boy. This is Angus and Nicholas. And Angus is giving uh-huh. Nicholas a crash course on a blended family, which uh, you're you're part of a blended family. Indeed. Um, no, and um, Angus doesn't know any any different from that because that's a family that he grew up on. So he was explaining to Nicholas, like, now 
My dad was married before. I have a brother and a sister, but my mom is not their brother, but she is my little brother. Like, he was just laying it all out for them. And Nicholas looked at me and said, but are you part of the main family, or are you just sort of stuck on the side? And I was like, well, I don't know how to answer that. Sort of yes and no. Hmm. Yeah, kids really get at it, don't you? And then they... They, they can really make they you get think. get to the heart of it. Get the heart of You're, it. <laughs> How do yeah. I answer this, right? Um, I want to pick up that story um, after a break. We were talking with Catherine Heine. Her uh, debut novel is Standard Deviations, getting uh, rave, got get rave reviews, been out for uh, a while. Now it's in paperback. That paperback launch is today, and that's out and available. Um, Catherine Heine is with us uh, for another uh, 15 minutes or so. You can join this conversation if you'd like to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. More following this break. William Apis was a Native American Pequot man who wrote about the destruction of the families of indigenous people. If you were an Indian child in the 1820s, the chances are you're going to be an indentured servant. That would have been the norm. These were things that Native people couldn't escape, and their families were destined to break up and be fragmented. I'm Sarah McConnell. Join me for With Good Reason. Wake up with good reason tomorrow at 4 a.m. on Utah Public Radio. Am I dead? Everything's pretty black. I'm like that. Same as it has been last couple of weeks. There's a real difference here. How would I know if I was dead? This is a mistake. My family, my daughter, I do want to live. What happens at the very moment when you slip from life to the other side? And what happens after, next time on Radio Lab? Join us this morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Utah State University's Center for Women and Gender, providing a professional and social climate to enhance opportunities through learning, discovery, and engagement. Information at womenandgender.usu.edu. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We are spending the hour with writer Catherine Heine. Author previously of a uh, collection of short stories called Single Carefree Mellow. And uh, the novel, debut novel, is Standard Deviation. It's out today in paperback. Uh, so, Catherine Heine, uh, I want to uh, continue talking a bit about this. Uh, I found it very, I really responded to this piece in the New York Times that you wrote, uh, your personal experiences. Uh, so, before the break, we talked about how you're doing the carpool, and your son's uh, friend, Nicholas, uh, is asking some very pointed questions about what it's like to be in a blended family. I want to move forward to uh, when you met your husband. He's he's uh, in MI6, right? The equivalent of the CIA. Um, he is James Bond. He's James Bond. <laughs> so, British, I guess, you know, dashing. Uh, he's uh, several years older than mm-hmm. you. What did you What did you think when you met him? Well, when I met him, um, we met in a in a bar at a party, and he was wearing a tuxedo. And I said, "What do you do?" And he said, "Well, what do you think I do?" And I said, "I don't know. You look like a Secret Service agent." And I almost gave the poor man a heart attack because he was, you know, undercover agent. So. Um, but we dated for a while before he, I thought he was a diplomat, before he told me what he actually did. And when he told me he was a member of MI6, I was like, what is that? And he was like, well, you know MI6. And I was like, I just said, I don't know what that is. <laughs> so it was kind of, you know, deflating for him that I didn't even know what it was. But um, he was undercover when we first started dating, and I wasn't allowed to tell anyone what he did. And um, I was always really scared I was going to get drunk at a party and tell someone, Um, which my husband now says, you weren't the only one that was scared you were going to do that. (laughs) Um, But it's, it's a strange thing. It adds like a whole new, you know, level to your relationship when there's this secret undercover side to the other person's life. Yeah, that's. I guess it's a. It'd be exciting, right? It's kind of glamorous, a little bit scary. Mm, sure. Um, so I want to um, read. Go ahead. 
No, you go. Um, so I wanted to uh, just read a, a little uh, section from this. This is from the New York Times and their Modern uh, Love uh, series. This is Catherine Heine writing. Uh, she said, uh, you write, when I met my husband Ian in New York City, I was 26. At that point, I wanted to be, one, someone who looked sexy in black, two, the owner of a coach handbag, and three, Stephen King, albeit female. Stepmother wasn't on the list. Mother wasn't on it. Wife wasn't even on it. Yeah, all of those things are true. Um, I'd still like to be Stephen King. That part hasn't changed. Um <laughs> No, I mean, when when I became a stepmother, I think I was really unprepared for it. And I was lucky enough that my stepchildren sort of let me learn it along the way. Mm. We, we grew into it together. And I'm, I'm really lucky that that, that was the case. But um, And now I have teenagers, and my stepchildren were teenagers when I first came along. And so, you know, I get to do the teen thing twice, but I think that I'm a much better mother because I got to be a stepmother first. And stepmother, blending families, that's, I mean, you, you hear that, I haven't experienced it, I hear it's can be pretty hard. And you, you write that everybody, you know, including you, your two stepchildren, and, and everybody was kind of sarcastic. That's sort of, there were fights. Um not easy oh, yeah. to, to blend the family. No, I don't know how my poor husband survived it because he was so much the jam in the sandwich. Um, and, you know, at the time, it seems like that's all happening because it's a blended family. And maybe as you get a little perspective on it, you realize some of these things would be happening blended or not. And it helps to keep that in mind. After the, um, I mean, in the beginning, I did feel very much an outsider. And that lasted for quite a while. And when the the Modern Love column came out, I got so many emails from people saying that they were newly step-parents and waiting not to feel like an outsider anymore. So mm-hmm. I think it's pretty common. It, it, it's I mean, very... Of course, you come into some other family. Yeah. Yeah, I guess you you have to expect that, and then then you work at it, and hopefully, hopefully you 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 build those ties. It's very touching to to read about how having having your first child, um, and and you were not prepared for how much your your stepchildren would love your son. I know. I I thought I guess that they would be jealous or uninterested, and they were. They were so, loved him from the very first second. And um, I remember my stepdaughter saying to me when she was holding him for the first time, she said, oh, there's now there's someone who's half you and half us. And I was really interested that she wanted to claim sort of half ownership of the baby. Um, so, you know, maybe, maybe that did make a huge amount of difference. Um, but it was really uncharitable of me not to realize how much that they would love him mm-hmm. and, and reciprocated right you, you say your your son oh, very uh, much so. your sons would start crying immediately uh, your stepson walks in there because they're already missing when he'll when he'll be gone oh yeah they would cry for hours after he left it was very hard mm-hmm. there's another before we leave this there's a there's another um, very poignant scene in this article um, talking about being an outsider and, and how that those feelings can come back quickly. Uh, you, I'm not sure how, why you stepped out of the room, but uh, everybody was getting ready to go out on a on a winter's walk, and it, it turns out they all left without you. Yeah, I had gone upstairs to change, and when I came back, they they were all gone, and I think that they just left because the boys were in their snowsuits, and you know there were quite a few of us, and. Um, but I took it really personally. I just instantly snapped back to, and this was, you know, like at this point we'd been married 10 years, but suddenly I snapped back into like, oh, I'm the outsider. I'm the expendable one. It was, it was really surprising how close to the surface those, those feelings are. Um, 
and then, you know, later they were very kind and my stepson made me laugh and, um, and I got over it. But, um, yeah, it's, I don't know, I guess when you're a step parent, there's, it's a, it's a little more, um, tentative, the connection. And I guess you and I relate to this. You can be surprised how old emotions uh, can can come back so quickly that you thought maybe you were your yeah, past. They're not as they're not as far under the surface as maybe you think they are. Yeah. One of the themes that was a, a theme in the in the short story collection, a theme here in standard deviation, is infidelity. And I, I know you've been asked this question before. I'll ask it of you because it occurred to me. Um, and I know you, you you bounce some things off your husband. What did what did your husband think about the this theme resurfacing? Um, well, first, I think that infidelity is maybe a crutch that I rely on too much in in fiction. That I'm always like, oh, I want something to happen. Like maybe that person is in love with someone else. Um, although just recently, I was writing a story about a woman getting really drunk at the airport, which everybody that I've told that to has been like, oh, is it about me? (laughs) But um, I felt there needed to be something more urgent going on in the story. And my husband was like, well, maybe she's trying to get out of town before her ex-husband can find her. So he's, my books and stories are a little short on plot anyway, but without my husband, they would have no plot because he's very good at sort of adding that other element and steering it. Um, and I don't think he minds all the infidelity references. Mm-hmm. I would have to ask him. Although it was funny, when, in one of the short stories I was writing, I said to him, what do you want the husband to be like? And he said, I want the husband to be older and British and a mathematician. <laughs> and I was like, okay, but everyone's going to think that's you. And he was like, why would they think that? It's like, because you're older and British and a mathematician. And he was like, I don't think people do that. I don't think they make those assumptions. And I was like, wow, you're, this is what I deal with. This is how out of touch he is about that. Um, so it's kind of charming that he doesn't think anybody would ever read anything mm. into a novel or a short story. Yeah, that's an asset, isn't it? Because uh, in other situations, you might have to worry more about, uh, well, I can't make this too too much like uh, my loved one. Uh, we just have a few minutes left, and I, I definitely want to get this in. You, you write, uh, this is an extraordinary experience that happened uh, to you. I want to talk a little bit about this. Uh, you wrote in the, in the Guardian about your experience at 88 days in bed rest with, uh, was this your mm-hmm. first or second son? Um, this is pretty serious, right? You, you had to absolutely be in bed. The doctors were very worried that, uh, that your baby would not come to term. Yeah, my water broke, um, at 27 weeks. And usually when your water breaks, you go into labor, there's no stopping it. And if they can stop it, it's usually only for like maybe a week or two. Um, and there's a very small percentage of people who reseal. Um, and I was in that percentage, and um, which was only 1%. But I had to stay in bed, in the hospital, bedpans, the whole, like, there. It, it wasn't just sort of lying around a lot. It was really strict bed rest. Um, and the fact that I was able to go to term, to carry the baby to term, was pretty amazing. Um, and then I did bed rest with my second son too, mm, 88 wow. days with him. Wow. Like that's why we only have two. Wow. <laughs> H- how do yeah. you, how do you survive? How do you, what, what do you do? That's, that's quite the experience. I think that I went a little crazy and other people I've talked to said the same. Um, like I felt definitely that when doctors came in and, and, started saying bad things and talking about the baby being born that I would just shut down that I didn't want to hear that. I was like, I don't know why you're talking to me about all this scary stuff. It doesn't apply. And other people I've talked to said, yeah, that there's definitely a sort of split in your personality where you retreat a little bit into yourself and refuse to accept some things. Mm -hmm. And, um, 
And it was interesting because when it was over, I talked to my obstetrician and I said, why do you think I carried a baby to term when so many women don't? And he said, "Um, because you're so stubborn. And I was like, wow, I was meant to change that about myself and not be so stubborn. But maybe it was a good thing. Yeah, it's a positive, right? Uh, Just uh, and. Maybe that disconnect is necessary sometimes. You open this piece saying that you're, you know, you're, you're really, really a warrior. I relate to that. Um, in fact, <laughs> uh, when you're five years old, your parents had to stop watching the nightly lose because uh, the coverage of the attack of Munich Olympics, and you had nightmares about gorillas attacking you. You, you couldn't understand the difference between ca- terrorist gorillas and the, and the animal. Yeah, Absolutely. Um, and I remember my parents trying to explain, you know, that it was this horrible thing, but it wasn't, um, it didn't happen, you know, it wasn't, I mean, it didn't happen in our hometown, which is, I guess, because it was on the news, I thought it was very local for some reason. And um, the idea that gorillas could break in somewhere and, and attack you, I mean, I feel silly saying this, because as, as an adult, it's still what happened is so terrible. But um but yeah, after that, my parents were like, wow, she takes the news really seriously. I think we're going to have to stop this. <laughs> and then you said you'd, but, but you don't, you don't avoid the, the learning about scary things. In fact, you, you have sought them out. Um, I don't know if you still do that. Learning I about think the I bad do. things. I read. Yeah, I like to read sort of, I really like survivor stories and I like um, true crime stories. And Um, I think maybe, I think people who are anxious often like to be informed, they like to have a sort of informed anxiety. It doesn't really lessen it, but, um, it's, it's somehow more comforting than, than just being vaguely anxious about everything. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Maybe trying to bring some order through knowledge, uh, maybe that helps somehow. Yeah, I, I do relate to that. Yeah. Uh, just 30 seconds left. What uh, What's what's next? Standard deviation has been out, what, about a year now in paperback? What uh, what what's what can we expect next? I'm working on a new book. Um, and it's, it's funny because when you're writing a novel, you see the world through the lens of those characters. Like when I was writing Standard Deviation and all the origami stuff was happening, I was like, oh, I can send Graham and Audra there. And now with the new book, um, the new characters, everything that happens to me, I see through their eyes. Um, and I've recently become like addicted to the thrift store. So the people <laughs> in my novel go there a lot. <laughs> well, look they have for... like VIP cards. Yeah, <laughs> to, to the thrift store. <laughs> we'll uh, we'll yeah. look, we'll look forward to that. Well, we're out of time. Uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you, Catherine Heine. Uh, the novel is Standard Deviation. It's out in the paperback uh, today. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. And uh, thanks for listening to Access Utah. My former pipeline engineer is now a protester. We're in a climate crisis. To be increasing the throughput on that pipeline by almost three times is just absolutely the wrong decision. We should be moving away from this industry as quickly as possible at this point. Getting arrested for fighting tar sands. I'm Steve Kerwood, and that's next time on Living on Earth from PRI. Join us tomorrow morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. This is Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, also heard and streaming online at upr.org.